from Los Angeles, California. This is the Writer's Strike Chronicles, and I'm Tanya Barnes. Hello, everybody. Today is Monday, February 25th, 2008. Later today, the membership of the Writers Guild of America will vote to ratify or reject the proposed contract. And even though the town is back to work, it's worth remembering that Dewey did not defeat Truman. So be sure to get all the official news and updates at the Guild's official website, www.wga.org. Now, depending on the outcome of the vote, this may very well be the penultimate episode of the Writer's Strike Chronicles podcast. And if it is, you won't want to miss my final episode because I have a very special guest whose identity I'm going to keep under my weave mini fedora hat, so just stay tuned. As you listeners may have noticed, I have not released a recording from the strike line since the last day of picketing at Disney Studios a few weeks ago. And it's been really delightful to talk to my guests without the mayhem of chanting strikers and whistleblowers or the din of honking. I mean, it was exciting, that's for sure. But I have to say, talking to people in quiet offices and conference rooms helps me relax and to get a better interview. Like, for instance, in today's episode. Here, I talk with writer Matthew Goodman at the Writers Guild headquarters, where I got a chance to ask him not only about his union experience and strike activities, but I also had an opportunity to sit down with him and learn more about his process in the art of writing. Here we go. Uh, my name is Matthew Goodman, and I'm here today at the Writers Guild West headquarters to take some photos for United Hollywood which is an organization that's grown out of the strike and they needed active members to be part of a promotional event and they're taking photos and I thought I didn't strike today so I should come down and do my part. How did you get in the guild? I uh, started writing about 1997. I was in production before that and just wanted to finish a script. Mm -hmm. I did uh, a lot faster and more successfully than I thought I could and I decided I was going to be a professional screenwriter. You mean you worked in Hollywood below the line and didn't know you wanted to be a writer until you wrote your first script? Sort of. Um, I'd always been a filmmaker as a child. Uh, worked mostly in animation and uh, claymation, stop motion, like most people do, back when it was 8mm film without sound, not video. And then uh, got a video camera and started playing around with that, too. Discovered uh, girls, and the filmmaking went right out the window, as did the writing and the drawing and the cartooning. It all just was forgotten until I was uh, in college. And then I decided that I was going to um, try to get involved in filmmaking in Boston, where I went to school and grew up. Uh, what did you get your degree in? I'm just curious. I didn't finish. Oh. I, I actually came out to Los Angeles on an exploratory uh, mission. Someone said, uh, I have a friend who's working in uh, B-movies, basically, and uh, there might be a day or two on a movie set where he could be a production assistant. And I thought, wow, an assistant to the producer, that, that sounds like a good job, mm-hmm. which of course it wasn't. And I came out here, we're supposed to go back on the fourth day, and I never, other than visiting, I never went back. And that's, that was 12 years ago. Okay, so what happened? What made you stay? Tell us the story. First five minutes right out of the airport, I knew Los Angeles was going to be my home. I lived all over the world, many, many different places. I was lucky enough to have visited many countries as a child. And I thought, wow, this is the place for me. The first ten minutes on a set, handing out drinks. I wasn't even a PA. I was an assistant to the craft service for second unit. 
which is about as low as you possibly can get. And I said, these are my people, and I can do this. And I worked on two other movies for that production company and became a production coordinator for them and outgrew them. Literally outgrew them, and they said, you have to move on from here. There are better things out there for you. Okay. um, Can you tell us the story? Share us the story about the first script you ever wrote and how it came about. Mm. Well, I'd been around filmmaking my whole life and uh, I was working on Titanic started out as a runner ended up uh, assisting the post supervisor who's basically told to get out of here and start writing by whom? Uh, by Jim Cameron James Cameron uh, nobody nobody calls him Jim it sounds corny when you say Jim but <laughs> it, he's Jim he's just Jim if you work there um, anyone who says he's a tough guy to get along with I didn't have that experience if anything uh, it's, it's inc- I mean the man is extremely talented he's an engineer he did the drawings in titanic people don't realize that he's, mm-hmm. he's he holds patents he's he's incredible but how did he know to tell you to write I mean. uh well i think i was very vocal um maybe to a detriment to my future in working in his offices but not to my future as a writer and being very vocal about a lot of the material that was going in and out of the his production offices while we were working on Titanic. And at the time, I think he was developing a Spider-Man movie, and mm-hmm. that seemed perfect. But there were movies that were coming in for cast members of the of uh, Titanic that I was reading. Because sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes we did have uh, nothing to do. So I realized that these weren't as good as I thought they probably should be, and they had big agencies stamped on the front. And I started to... Uh, think, well, I have to do one of these. I've never written anything that was feature length, and I wanted to be able to uh, master, hopefully, the formatting of actually just writing a screenplay. And at the time, I didn't even realize that there was screenwriting software. So, uh, Curious, what do you use? Final Draft. Okay. I could go on for hours about how Final Draft, for me, gave me the lack of fear to write my first screenplay. Now I, I don't really need it. Mm-hmm. But I use it tr- not only because it's a great product, but also because uh, it gives me the confidence to not worry about any of the annoying parts of being a screenwriter. Like what? I'm not a screenwriter. Oh, yeah. just, it's just the formatting. Okay. I mean, I turn off 99% of the features. There's a lot of uh, extra features that people use in tools, and I don't use them at all. Basically, I just use it so I don't have to tab anything, and that it has a okay. perfectly studio-formatted, flawless, there won't be any mistakes in it when I'm done. Sweet. And it's definitely, you know, it's a small investment in anyone who wants to be a screenwriter. I, gar- I, I would recommend that or a similar software. So you took a crack at screenwriting and you didn't know anything about the craft of storytelling or writing a screenplay, or did you? I think that my whole life, probably coming from both sides of my family who are great storytellers, I come from uh, two separate backgrounds that people say have a few things in common. My mother is an Irish Catholic, and they're supposedly very good storytellers, and I agree. And my father's Jewish and from New York, so he's a pretty good storyteller too, and they're both teachers. So I'd always gone to see movies and thought about them as structurally, I didn't realize this until later as a kid, that I would watch them in a way so that I could come home and tell whoever didn't see it the entire film. Not just, it was about pirates. It would be, it opened up with this sequence and this, and I just used, it would be an hour. You were a bard. Right. right. Mm -hmm. I would, you know, the people, not everyone wants to hear the whole story, and sometimes they'd be like, okay, how does it end? But I wanted to (laughs) 
tell you almost in real time what happened, and I had that kind of memory, uh, not in school, but if you threw something up on a screen and it was interesting, I was going to remember every single frame of it. Wow. And now, maybe I'm a little older, now, unless it's very good, I don't think I have room to do that anymore, so I have to do my own stuff. Okay. And that's what I've been doing for the past, I guess it's 10 years. So it informed your writing. Oh, yeah. I could see sometimes, I don't know if this is other happens to other writers, but sometimes if you're really spending all your time working on something, you've got a deadline or it's you know the fourth day straight where all you've done is write and the room is getting a little wobbly, you close your eyes and you see the screenplay format like an overlay. Sometimes it's happened to me, I was supposed to write a script and it ended up being that I only had a week to do it. And somewhere in the fourth or fifth day, literally when people were talking in public, I was overlaying the interior Starbucks woman says to man, hey, can you pass me a straw? I mean, it was, and that doesn't happen to me now. It's almost like dreaming about, you know, Las Vegas. When you close your eyes, you hear the bells and whistles. And it was, it's similar to that. I haven't gotten that deep into a project in a while. And that's either because I've, I've learned how to not invest myself so much that I overload myself. But I think that uh, when you're really, really into it, it comes very naturally. It's the getting in the chair and the leaning over the keyboard. That's the hardest part. The immersion? No? I'm not a writer, so I don't know what the question For me, um, the hardest thing is it's almost a physical, it's an endurance thing. My biggest fear, and a lot of people have fears about writing, is... You know, um, like an example is a lot of people are terrified of having to create character names. They can have a character in their head for years, and they've decided that, you know, they could have an entire movie in their head, but they've never bothered to name the characters because they haven't had to convey who they are to anyone else. So something like the completely ridiculous fear of will I be able to make it happen when I need to, when you've never had the problem ever before... Will the sun rise tomorrow? Yes. But if someone asked you, well, will it? You're a little, you could be, well, I guess it, someday it might not. But odds are, when I sit down and I need to do something, then deadlines really help me. Uh-huh. I think if I was independently wealthy and never had a deadline, I, would, I couldn't write a word. And it's not because I don't have stories I want to tell, but because I'm more interested in telling stories that are going to get to people if I just want to tell it to myself, I'm not. There's no reason to do it. Okay, so take me to the strike now. How has the strike affected your creative process? Have you been pencils down, or have you been writing on personal stuff that you're not selling, or however it works? I, you know what, I. Uh, and this has nothing to do with some kind of uh, moral standpoint or anything, but I have not been writing since the strike has started. I don't work on television, so I don't have a day job that I go to is that, that I have to have deadlines. I'm a feature writer, so I have things. I, uh, I try to finagle situations where I can meet people and have scripts go out to producers, and that's basically what I do. There's more of that, actually, than the writing, that if someone else could do that for me and I could just be in a box somewhere and write, that would probably be the best job in the world for me. So I so have... be in a box with a deadline and you're good. Yeah, box and a deadline and... Um, not necessarily a, I don't need a story. I'll give you your story. Oh, wow. Have fun. But tell me where you want to be and when. <laughs> and then I'll figure it out from there. Because I think it's like a chef. Uh-huh. 
And if you don't really know what you want, and then you say, okay, well, let's try to triangulate what you want. Okay. And I might think you want a chocolate souffle, but what you really want is something that's like puff pastry. Uh-huh. But you still want chocolate. So I need to figure that out. And like being a film director, I've done small amount of directing. You have to have the kind of vocabulary, either verbal vocabulary or just be able to read people, to know what they need to hear or see to get the feeling they want. And if you could take the pulse of the movie going public, you could give them what they wanted. And you know how you know when you give them what they want? They go, and then they go again, and then they buy it. And then they want more, and then they start to talk about it online, and then there's a fan thing. And, and a community. Right. And that's because you did it. You did it right. And I, I've met people like who have followings. I used to work I used to work not directly but indirectly for George Lucas as a childhood hero. Jim Cameron, the same situation. I just was doing a lot of strike activity was with a guy named Joss Whedon. Who's, oh, yeah, I interviewed him. He's, you know, he has a following. He could never, first of all, he's a brilliant writer and a very amazing individual, uh, real stand-up guy. He has a following that if he never wrote another word in his life, he would still be satisfying these people forever. And just going to events and talking to these people would be, that's his purpose. He's a chef, and he makes these meals for people. And people wait to see what he's going to do next. That's funny you should say that, because when I asked him how did he build a community, he said that it was like making stone soup. Well, you know what? He's almost right, and I'm not going to contradict a man who's worth millions and has... (laughs) and has even more so, more importantly, satisfied tens or hundreds of millions of people with his work. Stone Soup, I think, is a story about a guy who doesn't have anything. And he did and does have something. He brought characters to people, and then they ran with them. But he didn't show up. I think Stone Soup is kind of like, from my perspective, that story is a con man at the beginning. And then the other people make it a wonderful thing. He doesn't have anything. Or he's a con man or he's a sage. It's tough to know. You could shoot it either way. You could have a short film with the evil Stone Soup and the, the, you know, Stone Soup guy as Messiah. Um, Depending on it. But to say that Joss Whedon showed up with nothing is, uh, he is honestly, I'm sure, a humble guy. But I think I'm going to say that he showed up with a lot more than nothing. Okay. So, uh, back to my question, how did how did the strike and picketing and all that, how did it affect your creative process? And are you ready to write? I'm, I am ready to write. I have never not been ready to write mm-hmm. okay. since I started. But during the strike, I didn't have one, surprisingly, I didn't have one uh, need at all to do any writing. And I couldn't figure out why. And it wasn't because I wasn't allowed to. I actually had two producers ask me to write a script during the strike. I hadn't had anyone to ask me to write anything for years, three or four years. And uh, I had to tell them no. They were very surprised, and they wanted me to backdate a contract and do all this craziness. And I said, there are people out there who will do it, I'm sure. I wasn't bored in the Writers Guild. I'm sure you'll find someone who, who is just trying to get their foot in the door. You know, I prefer that you went with a uh, with me, of course, but I can't help you in that way. When I left that meeting, my first thought was, "Wow, you know, when it rains, it pours, but 
I can't take the job. Yeah. Um, and I think I've dodged a bullet in hindsight. Any, I wouldn't want to work with someone who, who was going to do it not legitimately in the first place. But when I left that meeting, I felt that not only had I done the right thing, it wasn't even a, there was no question. It was immediate. Well, I, you know, don't you read the papers? I mean, I can't write you your movie. <laughs> but I realized that during the strike, which I've been pretty heavily involved with, I haven't been do I don't do homework very well, but when I'm on the line, I am a force to be reckoned with, and any event that there is, I will be part of. And it's not easy for me to get around, and I don't have any disposable income at all. So it isn't something that, uh, it's not a fight that I was looking for, mm -hmm. but I'm in it, and I understand now the sort of band of brothers and sisters mentality. Mm -hmm. I've always felt that way. But uh, I fulfilled my creative duties supporting my other writers. And I think that, like being a chef and trying to sell my pie to a, a film or TV audience, I think I was being a chef for 3,000, 4,000 people live in the city, and they for me. And they didn't look like they were bursting at the seams to get back to that project they were working on because they knew it was going to be there. They knew that this moment those energies needed to be turned into something physical. And if that's putting together strike signs with the staple gun and meeting other writers that you'd never have the opportunity to meet ever again. I met a guy while putting strike signs together that in my mind is a euphemism for a successful writer because there was a billboard in front of my house with it, without his name on it for a movie he wrote. And then the billboard came down and then it went up again with his name on it. And I thought, that writer has the respect and power of a manager, an agent of the studios, or whatever, that they're going to bother to remove a billboard that's already in place and replace it with one that they had forgot to put his name on. Because those are the rules. The writer has to have their name on the billboard. That's the rules. I met him in this very room putting together strike signs. And I didn't know he was the euphemism for me for oh. a guy who was successful. I told him an anecdote about his own name and he said, well, that's really interesting because that's me. Those kind of events, those kind of meetings of happenstance, I might never meet him again. Yeah. Someone out there is thinking, oh, well, did he get his card and maybe if he calls him, he'll get his script and you know what? It doesn't work that way. If it worked that way, if I was him, would I do that? I would hope so. But we're all our own individuals and we're all trying to tell our own stories and there are already there are only so many slots per year that are going to get produced so for us to support each other in that way isn't really realistic it's like athletes mm -hmm. we are athletes but standing next to each other putting signs together i know for a fact he doesn't need to be here you care to give him a credit I, I'd prefer not to say what his name is because I don't want to talk about what poster didn't have what name on it. But it's a big writer. He had three movies that came out last year. Mm -hmm. I know who it was. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, have you met people who've um, struck 20 years ago, or people who've picketed or, or you know struck in the past? I wish I had met more, and I know the only reason why I didn't is because I was uh, a very arduous gate. Mm. and also um, in Burbank at Disney. Okay. And the only reason why I was there, it's not anywhere where I live, but the gate captain is a great friend of mine and a very talented screenwriter who I'd used to be in a writer's group with, and we'd lost touch. He called me and said, do you want to be on my team? And I didn't even ask where. I said yes. 
Is this Michael Tab? Michael Tab. So, can you tell me whatever happened to your first script and where it went? My first screenplay is at the time I didn't realize that being nobody, you can't write a movie that costs three hundred million dollars. I thought, <laughs> well, I just came off a movie that costs over that, and what it costs like one hundred fifty. Titanic. Yeah, it's a lot more than that. Oh, really? Yeah, I can't say because I was just a you know. A and small I was pot. just a masseuse on that job. So that I would say that that's a three hundred million dollar movie. Hell. Yeah, it's you know. I don't know. It made over a billion dollars. So uh, Anyway, so nobody told you you could make it. I figured if I was going to write a script that it was going to be as big as I could imagine. And I thought, well, you know, then I'm just going to do a really humongous sci-fi epic thing, which I think is what a lot of people do. They go, oh, you know, I'm going to do a Star Wars movie or Dune or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I did. I had it all planned out. And then I went to a magazine rack and opened up a video gamer magazine. I don't play video games. I have a Wii. <laughs> but I'm not a gamer, and I opened it up, and there was an image of it of a young girl, like an anime, Japanese anime girl, with a giant robot, which seems mm-hmm. the most typical image in anime is giant robot and a mm-hmm. little girl. Mm-hmm. But something about it was different. And I ended up talking to my uh, brother of mine, who's a filmmaker. He lives in Nashville. He said to me, oh, by the way, I was slipping through this magazine the other day at a friend's house, and I saw this image of a young girl in a robot. And I said, well, she did, a hit. did she have blonde pigtails and a white jumpsuit? And he said, yes. Well, that's really weird, because I was going to write this one story, and I decided about an hour ago that I was going to write a story about this young girl in a giant robot. And now that you're talking to me, and you're 1,500 miles away, and you're telling me this, I'm going to write that. So I wrote a giant space epic takes place in the far future where there's a young girl who is befriended by this defunct giant robot. Hmm. So about a year or two before the Iron Giant came out in a movie called Star Kid, none of them are like that at all. It's, 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 you know, you barely could afford to make this movie now. And I would love to make it as a small story. It really could be a cute small story for, you know, now that I know what things cost. So I finished it. I thought it would take me a year. It took me about 20 days. And I know that sounds fast, but it's it's a damn good strip. I, I still read it, and I, and I like it a lot. And uh, I immediately somehow got it to a guy named Phil Tippett. Oh, you're kidding. Right. Who is, to me, a childhood animation, yeah. Star Wars, stop-motion guy. And you think, wait a minute. They're always, in the interviews, they always skip over the... And then I got it to Phil Tippett. You yeah, know what? Yeah, you know yeah. what? I'll tell you what happened. My brother, who was an extra with a woman, whose <laughs> whose father was the voice of Alvin on the Christmas song. Yeah. Okay. He knew a woman who knew Phil Tippett. So I gave my brother the script. And even I sent it to him in Nashville so he could send it to her. She gave it to her dad. Bing, bing, bing. Two weeks later, I get a note back from Phil Tippett. It says, this is great. I love it, but they won't let me direct a movie this big. And I haven't even done my first one yet. And at the time, he hadn't directed a film yet. And I was like, but then what? What? Like, but can't you help me? And he said, okay, there's a producer, and you can call her. She's one of the producers of Lethal Weapon. And I thought, this is easy. (laughs) This is really easy. I don't know anybody. This is great. So she gets it. I get a letter back. I just finished a movie called Star Kid, and it tanked. Nobody liked it. It's got a robot in it and a kid. Plus, this is beyond anyone. This is a huge movie. You continue writing, but write something you can get done. Write something realistic. 
So I did. And then I wrote basically a Will Smith movie. Sean Connery and Will Smith. That's what everyone said when they read it. It's two cat burglars. One's a young black guy, and he's very funny, and just like you would think. And then Sean Connery, like old English guy, and he's... It's perfect. It's a studio movie. Sent it to some people. Very similar situation. No special connections. Hey, if you know Sean Connery or Will Smith um, or Chris Tucker, you know, go for it. If you don't, you might want to go a little smaller. So then I said, okay, who do I know who knows people who actually make small movies? And I had a friend, a roommate of mine, who was friends with an actor who knew guys who made small movies. And they made genre movies. They made a guy in a briefcase with diamonds and a girl and a gun and, you know, junk. Really, just things that were rip-offs of things that were popular five okay. years previously. So I wrote them a junkie script. I started, and then I realized I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't make a bad... I'd worked on movies that were similar to that, and they were two weeks, two million dollars. We just saw the trailer for X, Y, and Z film. We're going to make a movie based on what we think the movie's going to be about, and we're going to have it out. So I stopped, and I went, you know what? I'm going to write a big movie. I'm going to write a movie that I think could be done for $80 million or $8 million or $800,000. And I, you know, I gave it to the actor and I said, I will guarantee you that you will have a role in this that is, cannot be cut out. The lead guy, who we know is going to be some famous person, mm-hmm. will it be in every single scene with you. You will be brothers and you will not be able to be cut out of the film because you'll have to be double built a uh, second billing because you're the second character. I created a story that allowed me to tell a story that I love about two brothers. One worked for the CIA as the NSA in my script, and the other one worked for the mafia. It's a very typical, hmm. you know, action movie. They're hired to kill the same guy, and then yeah. they team up and they turn on their bosses, and it's a great concept. Based on a couple books I read as a kid, and I thought. I'm going to do my take on the separated brothers brought back together to fight crime. And, you know, that's what it ended up being. He took the script to the producers and right before the last almost strike, Mm -hmm. they said, we can't do it. There's going to be a writer's strike. We can't do it. Well, I'm not in the writer's guild. And they said, it doesn't matter. There won't be any actors available. Mm -hmm. So I got another job and I was working post-production. And while I was out of town, I got a call and they said, the strike is not going to happen. Sherry Lansing's on TV right now saying that they gave the writers what they wanted. And I thought, well, that's great, A, for me, because maybe this movie will happen, which mm-hmm. it did. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I thought, there's no way I'm going to let this movie get made unless I get in the Writers Guild. And they didn't know why. They were, why do you want to be in the Writers Guild? They take uh, 6% of your income and they do this and this. And they, we're not, you know, if we, you might not be able to work for some of the smaller companies and. And I thought, you know, this is the team I want to be on. I didn't know the Writers Guild existed until I was maybe 16 or 17 when I saw the strike on TV in 88 on Entertainment Tonight. And I thought, those people, I want to be on that team. I want to be in that group. And I bet it's for life. I bet if you do what it takes to get in there and you continually rise to the expectations of whatever that group is, I bet you they're a lifetime organization. I bet that's the kind of cool thing it is, that once you're in, if you continue to do the right thing, they'll let you stay. And when I found out that's what it was, I, you know what, lifetime, if you stick to the rules, you're in for life. There aren't too many organizations that don't scare me that sound like, this is the only one. <laughs> I, I, I want to be in the writer's guild. So I, I literally fought with producers, and I had no power 
and they changed the script and a lot of weird things happened with it and I thought there's nothing I can do to stop that writers don't have a say but what I can do is make them sign this piece of paper and it took a lot of trying and I and I mean like you know when someone tells you a story like he stuck his foot in the door and they yeah, closed it yeah. like literally like this isn't gonna work and they're kind of you know there were actually some hairy not intellectually scary but like scary moments yes, like this yeah. isn't gonna work yeah. and like is this guy gonna punch me you know like that kind of stuff I'm a nerd that's what it is I want to be part of the, the cool kid club and they're like those aren't the cool kids we're the cool kids but you know what I got in the writer's guild I got them to sign the signatory agreement Wow, good. And that's why I'm here today. Okay. Um, my final question as we wrap this up, um, it's something I've been asking people on the line. Um, I'm trying to come up with a new question, so maybe you can help me. But my final question is, what is a more powerful invention? I know it changed history. I know it changed communications. changed a lot of things. changed the course of religion. What is a more powerful invention, the printing press or the Internet? And if you do say it's the printing press, I want a better reason than because it was first. Wow. I think any device that can actually directly contact, connect every single person on Earth uh, through a beam of light, nice. I think that's pretty, pretty impressive. I mean, depending on how you see things, the printing press was invented. It wasn't invented to connect people. It was probably invented as a cost-saving measure. And the internet was invented as a way to communicate in the case of a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think as far as improvement, I think the internet uh, is it's damn good because I can buy shoes on it and I can watch a movie on it and, uh, and I can get my news on it and I can entertain myself on it. And uh, compared to a communication avenue for the survivor military survivors of the United States uh, after a nuclear war I think the internet is really really an improvement on the printing press thank you very much for your time this has been quite a delight and it's uh, taking the show in a direction where I kind of want it to go I was wondering what's next after the strike cool thank you You have been listening to the Rider Strike Chronicle podcast, available for free through iTunes. For more information, visit us at www.strikechronicles.com. To contact us, please call 310-439-8754 or send us an email at info at strikechronicles.com.